as you know, if you've been attending for a while, uh, we're walking through this summer kind of a character sketches look at the 12 disciples, later the apostles, and it's been interesting, right? Interesting ride. Uh, what's, what's also interesting, as, as we go through the list, uh, the, the material, if I could put it that way, or the scripture references, the volume of words becomes less and less. Uh, so we, the, the challenge is to, uh, while staying true to the biblical text, uh, kind of infer more and more and more, and that's going to be true in the disciple we look at today. In 2019, uh, something happened to me that began close to a, a, a two-year very unfun process. In 2019, uh, I was kind of minding my own business. I was on the road early April. I was heading, I was in Southern Illinois, heading to uh, Tennessee. I teach at Aurora Christian High School, and we have an annual uh, right around Easter time, we have an annual week where uh, students and staff um, volunteer at a at a Christian camp um, in various. We've we done various states and building projects and things like that. So I was on my way. In fact, I was two hours, a mere two hours from the camp when all of a sudden it hit. Now I say all of a sudden, but as I reflect back. Uh, there were there were signposts and there were there were practices that I had kind of stopped doing that contributed. I experienced my first ever panic attack. It's like it, I'm driving down the road and the heart starts to race. And if, if you've ever experienced a severe panic attack, that's what I that's what I experienced. Like what in the world? And I'm trying to like mentally and I'm praying and no, I can tough it out. That I got this kind of a thing. Uh, but I didn't got it, and I ended up um, pulling off the side of the road, pulled off at a truck stop, and uh, walked in, grabbed a banana, just kind of nothing changed. It was, in fact, it was getting worse and worse and worse. So I checked out where the uh, nearest hospital was. It happened to be a military base, and so that was weird. Um, uh, I had to go through a checkpoint, had to explain everything, and so they let me go. I found out later they cannot not allow you to come in. So the doctor ran a battery of tests. I was there for several hours. Nothing. Nothing wrong. All, all the levels were where they should be. The longer I was there, the better things got. Um, I ended up calling my wife, explaining the situation to her. Long story short, I did not make uh, the, the, the remainder of the two-hour trip. In fact, the, the leaders of the trip came up because I had some supplies with me that I was bringing down as well. They came up, got some supplies, uh, prayed with me. My wife came down and got me and took me back. Several more panic attacks would follow over the course of the next several months. And the best way I can describe that season, which lasted the better part of two years... The best way I can describe that season in my life was a disturbing disorientation. That's the best phrase that I can come up with, a disturbing disorientation. As I began to, and I'll use the word stabilize, as I began to, to, to stabilize, I was beginning to like, like when you're in it, yes, you're, I mean, I was praying, I was asking God what was going on, but... Like the thinking isn't, 
the thinking's cloudy, you know what I'm saying? It's not quite clear. So as I began to stabilize, I began to engage in some, some really, really deep, and as I reflect back on it, necessary introspection. Through a confluence of three main things, counsel of some super close friends, books that I began to read on the topic, on the subject. Oh my gosh, so many books. And I began to re-incorporate some spiritual disciplines that I had kind of forgotten about. Especially the combination of silence and solitude and scripture and prayer. Those two combinations, as well as the counsel of close friends and some books, began to reveal something to me. It wasn't, it wasn't like one minute, here it is. No, it was over time, uh, this revealing. And, and here's what the revealing was all about. I began to realize that I had, I had developed, fallen prey to, a mindset of self-sufficiency. I might put it this way. A mindset of, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Until eventually, I didn't got it. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you get that. Through that season that I just described, God graciously, over time, helped me understand this reality, this truth. Bill, you don't got it, but I do. You don't got it, but I do. Those of us who have lived life a few decades, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we've come to realize this, haven't we? Like, there is... If 2020 taught us anything, there is very little in life we control. Fair? There is very little in life we can control. We like to think that we can control more than we can control. I think that I got it, I got it, I got it, I don't got it kind of mentality is helpful when we look at Nathaniel. I term Nathaniel the uh, I got it, I got it, I don't got it Disciple, And maybe in your walk with Jesus, maybe that helps put some things in place for you. Maybe that kind of describes you. I want to show you something on the screen. It's the disciple groupings or disciple listings that we find in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then also in Acts. There is no listing in John, so that's, not why, it's up, that's why it's not up there. Now notice... We're going to use the term Nathaniel today because we're going to be in John's gospel and John calls him Nathaniel. But he's, he's listed as Bartholomew in the synoptics as well as in Acts. So let me kind of unpack and help us understand what's Nathaniel, Bartholomew, which is it? Well, it goes something like this. Bartholomew is Hebrew for son of Tolmai. Bar in Hebrew literally means son of. For example, uh, Peter, Simon Peter, he is referred to as Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. So we might see Nathaniel as Nathaniel Bartholomew, 
Nathaniel bar Tolmai, Nathaniel son of Tolmai. So that's why we have two different references to the same dude. But again, we're going to use uh, the word Nathaniel because that's the, that's the name that John gives him. So I want to encourage you somehow, some way, get to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 43. There is consistent historical attestation that Nathaniel post-resurrection, post-ascension, sometime after that, that he did not remain in Judea, the southern region of Israel, in the, Jerusalem is in Judea. He did not remain there. We have good historical attestation that he actually went outside of Israel and, like, was obedient to the command to make disciples of all nations. While there's some disagreement as to where he went and what happened to him, how he died... There is great consensus that, in fact, he took the call to go seriously. So with that background in place, John chapter 1, verse 43. Now, I suspect that Pastor Tim has walked through this passage with you a time or two because this is where we first meet several of the disciples. So verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And here we go, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. And of course, Nathanael's reply, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's if Philip says, Don't take my word for it. Come and see. Come check it out. And so that's what Nathanael did. He he took uh, Philip at his word, and we're going to see he actually goes and meets Jesus. So the fact that Philip describes Jesus or the Messiah in such a way to Nathaniel, I think is an indication to us something very positive about Nathaniel. He got it, right? Um, Nathaniel prized the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He was a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he was also a student of, of these prophecies about Messiah. I think that's why Philip describes Jesus to him. Dude, Philip, remember what we've been talking about all, these, all, all this time? All these men, or, or Nathaniel, this is, it's him, man. The one that Moses and the prophets, and if you're not familiar with it, Moses and the prophets in the day was shorthand for the whole Old Testament, the one that everybody in the Old Testament has been pointing to. And he is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Now I imagine trying to enter into this conversation that Nathan can almost imagine Philip responding, Philip, 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 dude, you had me. You had me at Jesus, you know. One Moses wrote about in the law, so did the prophets. You had me, but then you lost me when you said, Nazareth. Nazareth. Seriously? Naz so to try and enter this, let me, let me bring in an old Indiana Jones reference. Okay, you with me? An old Indiana Jones reference uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? It's as if Nathaniel said, Snakes, why did it have 
to be snakes. Nazareth, why did it have to be? You get the vibe, right? Picking that up? Okay. Needless to say, I don't think I'm going out on a limb and saying this. This was not a stellar character moment for old Nate, right? Was not a stellar moment. We might say he got it. He don't got it, right? He got it. Mm, he don't got it. I think there are. I think there are a couple of character pieces revealed here for us to kind of sit up and pay attention to. I think the first one is blatantly obvious. The second one, maybe not so much. The first one, Nathaniel was prejudiced. Here's the deal. We find out much later in John's gospel that Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. Guess what other city was a mere 10 miles away from Cana. That's right, Nazareth. So we know that we know that we know that, that Nathaniel knew, he had something, we're not told. We're not told what he had against Nazareth. And we, didn't, we don't know if it was a, like a thing with Nazareth, like everybody would say that. But Nathaniel said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? It's, it's kind of like, for those of us who were born and raised in Aurora, it's kind of like the east side, west side thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now we're starting. Now, now you just woke up. I'm from the east side, born and raised. And this is like west Aurora. Can any good thing come from West Aurora? Right? No, don't take that too per Take it a little personally if you're from the West Side, but not too personally. But those of you born and raised, that's a thing, right? That this, however, was a thing. I want you to think back to when Pastor Tim walked through Matthew. Matthew, the disciple with you. Is not Nathaniel's comment, can any good thing come from Nazareth, eerily similar to the Pharisees' comment when they see Jesus? Immediately after Jesus calls Matthew, what do we see? What do we find in the narrative? What's he doing? He's having a meal with who? Matthew and his tax collecting friends and sinner friends, right? Familiar with that? And what's the Pharisees? They speak to his disciples. I don't know that they had guts to approach Jesus, but they speak to the disciples. Why, why, does, why does your rabbi eat except, because that's what it meant back in the day, if you shared a meal with somebody, that's, you, you accept them. Why does he eat with, why does he accept, hear this, those lesser than, those lesser thans. Do you hear that in Nathaniel's voice? Can any good thing come from those lesser thans? If we're not careful, what the Pharisees do, and I think what Nathaniel do, 
He objectified and dehumanized. The Pharisees objectified and dehumanized. When we objectify and dehumanize people, here's what we do. We treat them as a means to our ends rather than fellow image bearers, rather than an end in and of themselves. We use people. We tend to think that this kind of objectification and dehumanization that's out there right that's what other people do other people treat other people as lesser thans I surely don't treat other people as lesser thans or do I or do you what's worse don't we don't we sometimes couch our prejudice in a in a false concern have you heard did you know and we're often running aren't we we are often running and if we're not careful that quickly turns to gossip and even slander and we we mistakenly think that the that the patented bless their heart gives us license to gossip and malign and prejudge. Do with that what you want. Food for thought. Well, we're not really told specifically what the big deal was with Nazareth. I wonder if John is using this conversation as a setup for the rest of his gospel. Might John be alerting us here, and I think he is, as to how Jesus would be received generally as a lesser than, as a nondescript, overlooked, rejected. Who does he think he is? Kind of a Messiah. A Messiah who dare I say it, was objectified and dehumanized. I wonder. So character piece number one, Nathaniel was prejudiced. I think that's pretty obvious. This one may not be so obvious. I think, Na- I think Nathaniel put God in a box. Nazareth, really? Nazareth? I kind of think not. God can't work in Nazareth. God can't work through Nazareth. Do we ever do that? That... That person over, never come to Christ. Never gonna. Years ago when I was working for Pepsi-Cola in a former life, uh, I, had a, I had a stop. I was delivering, delivering Pepsi-Cola at the time, working on the route trucks, and I had a particular stop. It was at a pick and save. Anybody remember the old pick and saves? You guys, like, I think they came from Wisconsin. They were gonna, they were gonna you know, give Jewel and Dominic's a run for, that. where's Dominic's? Whatever happened to, is that, are they, they're gone, right? So anyway, um, this guy was the receiver. He was in charge of the back room that me and all the other deliveries, we, we had to go through him, right? Did not care for him even a little bit. Not even a little bit. He took, he took pride in yanking our chain. But it wasn't just us. It was all, like, he was all that, Right? And I'm the boss back here, and he let everybody know it. 
I was a Christian at the time, just a couple years in the Lord. And I'm thinking, this, this dude is lost. Like, I don't, I don't think even Jesus could save him. Right? I ate my words. Because several years after that, fast forward 15 years, I'm now pastoring a local church, and I'm at a pastor's conference. And who do I see across the room? I'm like, what? Like, it's, it rubbed the eyes scene, you know? And, and so when the, when the session was over, I had to get over and talk to him. And he shared his glory story of how the Lord radically changed him and transformed him. And I'm like, how? <laughs> yeah. Because my God was too small. That's how. I have a tendency. Maybe you can relate to this. I have a tendency to try and contain God in my mental box. In my mental image of God, I try and contain him. And in that containing, I try and manipulate him. You see, I want a God that makes sense to me. I want a God that I can control. That's the God I want. To give us a little perspective on this, some of you uh, may be familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, 20th century author, Narnia, Narnia Chronicles, Mere Christianity, all that kind of stuff. He married what we would say relatively late in life. Her name was Joy, and within five years she was dead. She died of cancer. And that put C.S. Lewis in a serious, like, tailspin. And he asked all the questions that some of us have asked in similar situations. Like, what's up with that, God? How? I waited all this time. You bring her. You take her. It's kind of like Job, right? And being a writer, a way for him to process his lament was he wrote. He journaled. And he journaled, and this was over many, many, many months. And he journaled, and he journaled, and he journaled. Eventually, all of his journaling became a book. The title of the book is A Grief Observed. And towards the end of that process, near the end of the book, he has this kind of revealing, this revelation. Check it out. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. An iconoclast is a smasher of images. An iconoclast would go into uh, temples and various sacred spaces, smash idols. Uh, so that's what an iconoclast was, a breaker a smasher of idols. C.S. Lewis is tying into that. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? He is calling God himself the divine iconoclast. The incarnation is the supreme example 
It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. What Lewis is saying is how gracious of God to come to us and break and smash our insufficient views of him, our mental takes on him, our all too small, I want to control him, I want to understand him completely, images of God. And C.S. Lewis says, might that not be one of the most important marks of his very presence in our lives? I think Nathaniel's idea of Messiah was too small. He don't got it. He don't got it. Verse 47. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This word deceit is crucial in this verse. Uh, for those of you who might be sportsmen, hunters, those kind of things, the word means decoy. It's totally setting up. It's exploiting the naive. It is using people. It is using people as a means rather than as an end in and of themselves, rather than as a fellow image bearer. It's, it's pretty widely held that this was Jesus commending Nathaniel. I am not convinced of that. Based upon Nathaniel's response to Philip, Nazareth, can any good thing come from Nazareth? I'm not sure if this was Jesus commending Nathaniel's present character or potential character. I think both options are viable. Consider this. Might Jesus' words have been a subtle, even mildly sarcastic rebuke of Nathaniel's Nazareth? Why did it have to be Nazareth. I think that's a possibility. I mean, we'll soon see that Jesus saw Nathanael beneath the fig tree before Philip approached him. So Jesus was surely well aware of Nathanael's comment back to, prejudiced comment back to Philip. I think that's a possibility. And for my money, I think that's the more likely possibility. At any rate, if Jesus was speaking to Nathanael's present character then Nathaniel is presented to us as a typical human being, just like you and just like me, a mixed bag of commendable character traits and non-commendable character traits. If Jesus was speaking to Nathaniel's potential character, then I think Jesus is providing, instilling hope into Nathaniel, a sort of a sort of target for Nathaniel to shoot for, a sort of person to become, a kind of person to become. At any rate, Jesus was speaking life into Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's discipleship had begun. Verse 48. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked? Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus responded, uh, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? I want to present something to you, I'm not going to park there, 
but I just throw it your way for future thought. I want to I wanna put together a word and a phrase. And the word is in verse 48. The word is before. And later in verse 48, I saw you. Before, dot, 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 I saw you. Apply that personally. Let me give you an example. Bill, before you were born, I saw you. Bill, before I spoke everything into existence, I saw you. Bill, before you rejected me, I saw you. Bill, before, and fill in the blank, I saw you. I don't throw that your way to to induce you into guilt, shame, or anything like that. But I throw that your way to expand. If your God is too small, if your Jesus is too small, I throw that your way to encourage you to expand your image of who Jesus really is. Nathaniel, son of God, king of Israel, declaration suggests at least two important considerations. Number one, he got it. He nailed it, right? Yep. Yep. Now, it would take him a while to understand the fullness of what he had just said, but he got it. John's gospel, if you're not familiar with it, is written as a defense. So from John chapter 1, verse 19, through the rest of his gospel, that is John defending the first 18 verses of his gospel. John 1, 1 through 18. Earlier... Uh, during, during music time, we actually quoted, we said together, John 1, 1 and 2, and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with, with God. And this Word became flesh, put on human flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. From verse 19 on, John's gospel is a defense of that proposition, is a defense of that assertion. And I think he is using Nathaniel's declaration to that end. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He got it. Secondly, Nathaniel's declaration is him connecting the prophetic dots, so to speak. We might think of the Old Testament messianic prophecies as shadows pointing forward, pointing to the future, ever pointing, 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 pointing to what? To the shadow caster. To the one who cast the prophetic shadows. And now Nathaniel stands in the very presence of face to face with the shadow caster, a Middle Eastern carpenter who would go around restoring men's, women's, and children's humanity and dignity through healings and exorcisms and teachings and forgiveness. That's who this Jesus of Nazareth, the shadow caster, is. We live, don't we? We live in the time between times. Time, Jesus' first coming time Jesus return 
We live in the time between times. But we have our own declaration of expectation, don't we? We call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. Check out Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are the words? What do we do? We proclaim by faith until he returns. We proclaim by faith the death of Jesus until he returns. That is our declaration of expectation. Communion is our declaration. Hear this, church, that our humanity and dignity have been and ultimately and forever will be fully restored by a Middle Eastern carpenter whose name is Jesus, even Jesus of Nazareth. Finally, verses 50 and 51. You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, you see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I think Nathaniel got this. I don't think he understood all that it entailed, but Nathaniel, being, being uh, 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 a student of the Old Testament scriptures, he recognized, this is Genesis 28, man. This is the shadow caster saying, I am the promise keeper of Genesis 28. Look what he does. Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran. This is the Lord reaffirming his, process via, uh, his, his promise via dream to Jacob. The same promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and father. He reached a certain place, spent the night there. Because the sun had set, he took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky. And God's angels were going up and down on it. Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? On me, Jesus the Son of Man. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Here's the promise. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Not only is Jesus equating himself with the stairway, he's saying, I am the promise keeper. Nathaniel, I will be your promise keeper. I am the stairway I am the shadow caster who keeps his promises, who gets it, even when we don't. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul echoes, for there is one God and one stairway between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, crucial to my process of healing from my I got it, I got it, I got it, I don't got it. Crucial to that was regular, deeply personal encounters with Jesus in unhurried and uninterrupted times. Encounters with the stairway, the one mediator, the God-man, the promise-keeping shadow caster. the one who continually reminds us that even when we 
don't got it. He does. He always has. And he always will.